country music station plays soft But there's nothing, really nothing to, to turn off Oh boy, welcome everyone to Voices and Visions. I am your host, Jim Laskowski. Please be sure to subscribe to all the wonderful shows over at NowPlayingNetwork.net. I was recently on two other podcasts featured there. Movie Madness, in which I play a game entitled Me, You, and No One with host Eric Childress. And if you want to know all about that crazy game, you'll have to go and listen. Uh, I was also recently a guest on Director's Club talking about the works of Albert Brooks, which should be up within the week, hopefully. Uh, and as well, you got Final Emergency, Pure Cinema Podcast, Supporting Characters, Tracks of the Damned, Fresh Perspective, and Popcorn Supper to get you through these lazy days of summer coming up. Subscribe to any or all of them ASAP. Well, it's been a string of great new episodes here. Glad to be back, of course, uh, starting with Stephen Tobolowski. And recently, I also had friends on, uh, Megan Lamb and Dan Solomon. Uh, great conversations with them. It was wonderful to catch up and uh, talk pop culture to some degree. This episode here is no exception to one that I'm very excited to share since the guest happens to be someone I spoke with last year. We covered the majority of his directorial efforts, and that would be, of course, Keith Gordon. One of my earliest memories as a kid was seeing the film Christine at home around the age of seven, since my dad had recorded it off of HBO, edited out the explicit language, and showed me just... Um, what it was like to experience a horror film um, that might have been one of my first horror films when I think about it. Uh, I probably had seen Nightmare on Elm Street around the same time and it scared me to death. But um, yeah, so Christine was a very memorable moment in my movie viewing experiences, especially since this was around 1985 or so and I was falling in love with movies after I'd seen Back to the Future. Uh, yeah, it was my first John Carpenter film, my first Keith Gordon film, um, and many years later, I worked at a video store, and we had a copy of A Midnight Clear and The Chocolate War, two adaptations that Keith Gordon directed that I became very, very excited to tell people about. Um, I've been fans of both of those films. I've been a fan of both of those films right out of the gate, and I've recommended them to pretty much anyone I could find. So I followed Keith's career ever since. And I still find myself taken aback by the fact that I get to nerd out over movies with someone as accomplished as he is. And his career continues to get more and more interesting, having recently directed episodes of Fargo, The Leftovers, Homeland, Better Call Saul, Rectify, and many more great TV shows I've been championing over the years. So uh, we, we also talked a lot about his last uh, feature film, called The Singing Detective. It's an underseen musical noir adapted by Dennis Potter, who is also responsible for uh, the original version, um, as well as Pennies from Heaven. So if I had to pick out a Keith Gordon film that might be his weakest, it could be Singing Detective, but that's not to say I dislike it 
or would call it an interesting failure the way some people have. I think it's an interesting film in general from from Keith Gordon. And it's perhaps an outlier in his, um, you know, um, au revoir, you might say. But uh, I still think it's fascinating. It carries on some of the more prevalent themes and ideas that he's had. And the cast is great. There's some really memorable song and dance numbers. And it's pretty, um, you know... Uh, openly sexual at times too in ways that we hadn't seen before but i mean i think keith is you know what he's doing now is what a lot of indie filmmakers are doing now as you mostly know if you're following a lot of these names when you watch these shows uh, especially when you see who's directed the episodes um independent filmmakers are going right to tv but um keith is certainly not doing sitcoms on cbs he's working with guys like noel holly Damon Lindelof, Vince Gilligan, oh, and he's also working with one of my new favorite actresses, Carrie Coon, of both The Leftovers and season three of Fargo, and boy oh boy, I can't tell you how much I adore this actress. So I'm delighted once again to, pre- to present to you a wonderful discussion with a great guy, and I have no doubt you'll enjoy what he has to say about working in the TV medium as well as some of the directors he considers to be underrated. So, without further ado, let's get to it, guys. Um, this is my talk with the fantastic Keith Gordon, and I'm sure there's going to be more conversations with him in the future, and I can't wait. Thank you again for listening to Voices and Visions. Here we go. gentlemen welcome to another exciting edition of voices and visions formerly pop culture club and a happily a part of the now playing network please be sure to visit nowplayingnetwork.net for a wide variety of great podcasts about movies and music so today's returning guest is just a remarkable talent uh last time we discussed the majority of his great filmography since I've been a fan of his since the uh, debut adaptation of The Chocolate War, and of course, his work as an actor in Christine. For our follow-up interview today, we'll talk about the one film of his we didn't get to last time, um, as well as how he transitioned into working on some of the very best TV shows currently on TV, um, and as well as his picks for some underrated directors, please welcome, once again, a true actor's director, the great Keith Gordon. Oh my God, that's the nicest introduction I've ever heard in my life. I, I'm just going to get off the phone now because I'm not going to be able to top that. It's, so, gonna, it's all done. Uh, thank you very much, and good night, ladies and gentlemen. No, that was really nice. Thank you. Uh, and sure. it's great to talk to you again, too. Yeah, definitely. We'll make this a yearly tradition. <laughs> Fine with me, you know. I, I really enjoyed it, so I'm, I'm looking forward to doing this one. Yeah, so I'm not sure if I brought this up last time we talked, but I've become a huge fan of the film adaptation of a certain show that was made into a movie starring Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters called Pennies from Heaven. Ah, yes. Yeah, and. I know that, uh, well, the reason why I finally caught up with it within the past couple of years is uh, film critic Amy Nicholson cited it as her favorite movie. 
And I'm kind of a fan of hers. <laughs> so I went and checked this movie out, and I was pretty much floored by it. And I think it's one of a, an example of an underrated uh, musical. And certainly that leads me to my curiosity of how you came to adapt The Singing Detective, which kind of takes a similar approach to dealing with darkness and pathos through the musical genre. So, and well, also, uh, a couple. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, um, having rewatched it again, I feel very silly and slow in not picking up the connection between you and your choice for the song to play during the opening credits. Like, oh my God, it's so obvious. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, a few things. First of all, I, I absolutely agree about Pennies from Heaven. I think the film adaptation is quite spectacular. It's yeah. probably, I think, you know, uh, you know, it's one of the best shot films I think ever made. It was mm-hmm. Gordon Willis mm-hmm. at his very, 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 very best. So on an visual level alone, it's well worth seeing. Besides, it's many, many strong points. But, yeah, I felt it got kind of unfairly dumped on, and people didn't know what to make of it. And, you know, when it came out, I actually saw it at the Ziegfeld in New York, which is a great way to see it, because back when the Ziegfeld had one huge, huge screen, and like wow. half the audience walked out, because just people just didn't know what it was. Um, sure. You know, not many people had seen the, the Dennis Potter uh, series, and they did a terrible job advertising it. They sort of sold, sold it as a magical Christmas movie or something. And so people went in expecting, you know, a, a uplifting old-school musical. So about halfway in, people were just running for the exit, which was so sad because I think it's a brilliantly made film. I think Steve Martin is incredible. I think, I mean, all the work in it is great, and it just was one of the worst cases of mis-selling a movie I ever saw. But yeah, in terms of listeners, I do really recommend that people see it. Even if you love the original miniseries, it, you know, I think what they brought to the film was, was spectacular and specific and, and really worth seeing. So off of my own stuff, but I just because I agree with Amy Nicholson and you, and I just wanted to put in my plug <laughs> for it because I think it's one of those films that I'm sad that more people haven't seen. Agreed. Um, Agreed. In, in terms of me, you know, it's funny. I just want to there's one word to use that I always I'm always frustrated with in terms of the the seeing detective thing is I, I didn't adapt it. You know, it was it was actually you know Potter himself wrote the script right, um, right. shortly before his death, and I got killed by the press largely over my end quotes ad- adaptation and what I did in quotes to the screenplay and <laughs> to, or to the you know and and. You know, I was fine with me if people did or didn't like it, but the fact that people were basically cursing me out in the press, you know, for having the temerity to rewrite Dennis Potter was like infinitely painful to me because really I was so painstaking to change almost nothing about the script and thought he was, you know, this was the way he had adapted it. And there were even things that I thought were flawed that looking back, I wish I had changed. But, you know, that this was what he wrote and he wrote it near the very end of his life. And, you know, I didn't, I wasn't about to rewrite one of the best writers of the, of the 20th century. So, sure. you know, I, it was always very painful for me that people kept referring to it as my adaptation. And when you did your adaptation, why did you do this? And why did you do that? It's like, I didn't. I did what he wrote. And, you know, I, <laughs> I take responsibility for directing it, but you know uh, the man wrote this script, so um, so it was always been sad for me because that one was like we even put like the press notes, you know, here here's his handwritten I have handwritten page from the script and his notes, and because we wanted to make that point so that people would think wouldn't think we were ripping this off and just like forcing an Americanization on it. It was it was his idea to reset it in America and 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 to you know rewrite it in the fifties instead of the forties and all the changes that were in the film. Um, that said, I will take responsibility for putting. Uh, Harlem Nocturne on the front of the film, 
And, you know, that was my idea. The songs were all songs that he had picked. Because uh, that was oh, another really? thing that I got raked over the call. Yeah, no, those were all right in the script. Nice. Um, the only thing that was a trade-out was um, Blueberry Hill was the one we couldn't afford the rights for, and we ultimately replaced it. I'm trying to remember which, which one it was. Um, but that, but basically, everything except one song were, 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 the, were the exact songs that he had in the script. And, and the only one we didn't was because we literally, they wanted like, like $200,000 for Fats Domino's Blueberry Hill, and we just didn't have it. Um, mm-hmm. And all the, other, all the other pieces of music worked with us because we were on a limited budget. Um, but yes, in terms of score, uh, we also used, you know, occasional pieces of, we, we figured once you were going with the, the, uh, the Potter mo- mo- motif of not having, you know, uh, traditional musical numbers, we didn't, I didn't want to do a traditional score. So for score, we used, uh, you know, a couple of existing pieces of music in Harlem Nocturne we used twice, which of course yeah. was used in Christine. And that was something that, you know, just happened in the editing room. We were just looking around for something that would have the right kind of noiry, dark, sexy feel. And I suddenly remembered that piece of music, and 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 I had a few moments of, is that too weird for me to do that? Is that going to be like <laughs> setting myself up for like people going, oh, that's weird that you had took the music. And I thought, you know, it's been whatever. 15 years or 20 years, whatever it was at that point, I guess it was closer to 20. And, you know, hopefully people who get it will see it with a sense of humor. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, and we put it on the film and it was so perfect. I mean, we kept trying, we kept trying other things and everything was, you know, too, too something, you know, it was either too sappy or too on the nose or too jokey or too, and that piece we kind of put on and my editor, Jeff Wishingrad and I sat there and went, that's kind of perfect. Um, so we just went for it and, and actually not many people have made the connection. It, it, I was, I was surprised that very, very few people actually did connect the dots on that one. Um, but yes, it's always kind of made me smile that I ended up with that piece. And, you know, thanks to, to John Carpenter, who was the one who introduced me to it. So, you know, I, <laughs> I, and, you know, I hopefully, and hopefully somebody who worked with me somewhere will use it in their film. And that it's a great piece of music. I mean, it's wonderful film music. So, you know, it, it's one of those things that deserves to be used every, every once in a while in a film, you know, and, and, uh, wow. And it just had a huge hawk land right outside my window. No, that's a complete non sequitur, but it caught my eyes. Uh, and it took off again, but that was very weird. Okay, well, that was kind of some sign of something. I don't know what. The spirit of Dennis Potter returning. I, something happened. Well, uh, at least it wasn't a crow. I just rewatched uh, A Simple Plan for one of the classes I teach here. There's so many crows in that movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So be grateful. Well, we do have our share, but... No, no, the hawk's much cooler. Hawk's very cool. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so so yes, that was it, was... it was not something I had planned in advance. It was just one of those editing room things that happens. When you uh, when you're just trying music and we were really stuck and then I remember that piece and we tried it and it was so damn good that we were kind of then then we were stuck with it. Yeah, and I think the I don't know I've, I've, I'm sure this gets brought up with Christine especially too is just the use of music. I think it's phenomenal in that movie. It was I, I might have seen it around the same time edited by my dad. Uh, Around the same time I saw Back to the Future, and again that's kind of what hooked me into oldies. Like both of those movies are great uses of oldies and, and yeah. songs from the, from, from the olden days that you would get on 45s. And I think it's really also kind of interesting how rock and roll is here to stay and um, pretty much the, the battle with Christine. And what's one of the first songs you use in the singing detective at the hop? 
Right now, again, that was that was in that was that was in um, in Potter's script. So I can't sure. take credit for it, but certainly there is a connection. Oh yeah, yeah. That, and you know. that was one of the first forty fives I owned as a kid. It had at the hop as the A side, and rock and roll is here to stay at the B side. <laughs> so I don't know if I ever owned that, but I think I knew that. I think I, I you know, I think I was aware of that that record. So yeah. I mean, I was certainly aware of the songs, but I actually think I was aware of the forty five. And of course, another obvious connection would be just the casting of Robert Downey Jr., who, of course, you acted alongside in Back to School, which was, you know, it's it's kind of a wonderful reunion, but it's also a rather unusual part for him because he's, you know, he's kind of a, a is a very physical actor, and here he is mostly confined to the bed. And you know he spends half the story stuck in bed. I wonder well, that what was it was like working with him. Well, that was an interesting part of the process. I mean, what's funny is that you know Robert essentially cast me instead of the other way around. Oh, Robert, huh. Robert, and, and Robert and Mel were already sort of on their way to making this film. What had, the, the the long story of it, which hopefully will be interesting, uh, is that Mel had originally optioned it. Uh, for himself to play the lead, and never kind of got around to it. It had been around for years, and it had been announced over and over again as a big Hollywood movie. It was a version with with Anthony Hopkins. There was a version, I think, with Jack Nicholson. There was a version with Dustin Hoffman. All his big studio movies, and and it never happened, understandably, because the failure of Pennies from Heaven, and also the fact that it's just too weird and experimental to be a fifty million dollar movie, but that's what it always kept getting tossed around as. Mm-hmm. And and Mel was sort of smart enough that he got that, so he optioned it, but with the idea of making it as a much smaller film, making it as an Indian, sort of financing it through Icon, his company. Um, but then as the years went by and it never quite happened, he thought of Robert for the lead and thought he'd be kind of brilliant. And Robert at that point was just getting out of jail. He was just getting back up on his feet. He was just kind of ready to try to come back and restart his career. And so this was, gonna, this was kind of Mel's gift to Robert, because they're sure. very good friends. And so, you know, because Robert at that point wasn't, wasn't insurable and wasn't, I mean, he was coming off of a really bad time. Um, and they had a director who will go nameless, but they had somebody who was going to do it and then dropped out pretty late in the game because they felt the, the budget was just too low. There was, like, no way to do it. <laughs> and so they were kind of scrambling, looking for somebody, and Robert thought of me. And they reached out to me, and, and I had a couple of you know, sit-down conversations with Robert and talked about my huge admiration for Potter and that he's always been a hero of mine and that I would kill for a chance to work on any of his material. And you know, I, luckily, they, they agreed to let me do it. Um, but I came in very late in the process, certainly not something I was used to on, on all my other movies. I'd, I'd developed them from the very beginning, whether I wrote the script or, or, or produced it or whatever, but this was the only time I came in with only a handful of weeks of prep um, right, right. and sort of, which was really hard on a film like that. It was technically was way over Ted and we didn't have enough money. And, you know, usually on a low budget film, you trade off money for time. Um, you know, the way to do things cheaper is to be really smart and plan like crazy. And I was walking in, you know, with, you know, a seven something budget, $7 million something budget for a musical set in the past and the present and, you know, no time to be smart about how to do it. And we couldn't go outside L.A. because Robert was actually on probation at that point, so he couldn't go work somewhere cheaper. We couldn't go film it in Yugoslavia or Canada or some of the things you might think about doing. So we were stuck shooting in L.A., which is one of the more expensive places to shoot. So it was it was very challenging and, and, and scary because I had to go in with much less time than I normally would have, and we had to cast all the other roles very quickly. And you know, and, and, and it all worked out great, but it was it was a strange situation where I was kind of picked and brought in and like, okay, go now. <laughs> 
Oh my! You know, get ready and shoot. Um, so it was a it was a funny experience that way. But one of the things in in the prep was talking to Robert about the character because he was everything you're saying is absolutely true. He's a very very physical actor. I mean, one of the things that is so strong about him is that whether it's Chaplin, whether it's, you know, he's he really uses his body and his physicality, and he was concerned about that. And and he sort of early on talked a lot about wanting to maybe not be in the bed so much and wanting to maybe walk around the room more and. And I kind of sold him, then it was a seduction process, on the idea that the very frustration of not being able to do that would be part of what would feed the character. Um, that ah. this guy's frustration and anger comes out of not being able to move. And I said, listen, you're going to be under a ton of makeup. And yeah, you, if, you don't, if you can't use your body, it's going to drive you crazy. But that's where this guy is. And if you dissipate that energy and we go against that, not only is it not really honoring where this character's situation is, but... but I actually think you'll miss a chance to use something that will really feed you in the role. And he was very receptive. I and mean, one of the fun things about working with Robert was that, you know, he he doesn't like to rehearse, or at least at that point didn't. I and mean, we haven't done anything since, so I don't know if that's evolved. But he, he was at that point very into the idea that he wanted to be very fresh when he shot. And he felt if you rehearsed the scenes, they would lose their kind of magic of happening the first time, which I understood and respected, but was with a writer as complicated as Potter and who's dialogue is very specific and has rhythms very it was very tricky so we had to find ways to work that were not traditional rehearsals but where we could at least talk about a lot of the ideas and what was underneath the scenes what you know we had to find ways to rehearse without rehearsing so i i, I took to writing him these long missives and sort of talking about issues like that and and also sending him music and photographs and films to watch and and it again worked out great in the end um, but that was that was definitely an issue that we spent time discussing, and in the end, I think he really did use it. I mean, he's so smart that it doesn't take much with him. If you put an idea in his ear, and it registers with him at all, he will he will dive into it and really run with it. And I think he really used that frustration to to bring out the pain in the sky because it did drive him crazy. I mean, it, I mean, and he did have to lie in that bed for hours. And then when he had the makeup on, it was itchy and weird and annoying. And, and, and I kept saying, and you know what, dude, that's the very best thing it could be. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it, but yeah. by the end of the day, he was kind of ready to lose his mind. And, and I felt bad for him. But I do think it really fed him in the role. Yeah, it's clear that he was up to the challenge. And, you know, for, for such a versatile, uh, capable actor like Robert, I, I think I think he's pretty remarkable in the film, and I also think that it's maybe people might think of it as an outlier in your filmography, but it does have you know your your, your playfulness with narrative, which you've done before in the past, sort of jumping around in in time, and uh, just the idea of a trapped character sort of escaping into this other world, which is. You know, it, it, it's something that I've I've always gravitated towards in in a musical like Pennies from Heaven or even Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark. It's just this idea mm-hmm. of a character who feels trapped in their minds because of trauma and despair, and the best way for them to escape is to create this whole other world. And I think you captured that uh, dichotomy really quite remarkable. And I wish more people would seek this movie out. Well, thank you. I mean, I look, I loved working on it. I think Potter's writing is brilliant, and I think he did create, you know, he was so inventive in terms of creating a, a, a language that nobody else that I was aware of had ever quite done in terms of the lip-synced songs and the using yeah. songs the way he did and, you know, and doing that thing, doing taking disassociated characters and creating a sort of comment on them using popular music and of the period. And, you know, I, I think he was really 
kind of a genius, and 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 I also think Robert's kind of a genius. I mean, Robert to me is one of those people who can sort of play anything. I I don't I don't know what role you could go to Robert with, and he could. I mean, if you ever wanted to, Robert could play Hamlet. Or he could play. You know, I mean, he's like one of those guys that just has this insane amount of talent and the ability to throw him in himself in with you know no holds barred, just complete completely brave, completely fearless. Um, you know, and, which is what we needed. Um, but it was remarkable because, again, we didn't go through a traditional rehearsal period, so I wasn't quite sure what this character was going to be like until we started shooting. I mean, we talked a lot about concept and rhythms and this and that, but but I'd never really seen the character until we were sort of on the floor and starting to film. So it was it was... You know, on the other hand, I was such a huge fan, and I'd never... I mean, the only thing you can hold on to in a situation like that, you know, where there's an actor who really doesn't want to rehearse, and, and, and where they have a body enough of work and, and where you want to respect that. I mean, you know, if, if, a, if a very young actor said that to me, I'd say, well, I'm sorry, that's, you know, I, that's not your call. But when an actor of, of immense talent and immense stature says that to you, you have to go, okay, well, then we have to work the way that's going to work for you. Um but it did mean that I was rolling the dice. On the other hand, I had never not liked Robert in anything, and that was the thing I really held on to, is that yeah. I never thought he wasn't great. So I didn't think this was likely to be the first time that he wasn't. And indeed, he was. And, and, and I was thrilled. I was like, you know, it was very exciting to me at the end of everyday shooting to see what he discovered and what he, what he did. But he was very much at that point, you know, a first-take actor. I mean, he was a guy that... that he wasn't wrong about himself. I mean, his best, best, best stuff tended to be when he was super fresh to a scene. Hmm. You know, we often would end up shooting his close-ups first, even before the wide shot sometimes, because he was so alive when he first started doing it. And then, over time, it would start to lose a little bit of that, that kind of in-the-moment genius that he would bring to it. Now, I suspect some of that had to do with where he was physically and emotionally at that time. I mean, again, the guy hadn't acted in a couple of years. He had, was in jail. He was physically getting off drugs. He was the first film he'd ever done without foreign substances in his body. I mean, he, it was a, a very trying time for him, yeah. uh, emotionally and, and sort of psychically. And so I suspect that those things, you know, are very, very different now. But at the time, it was really, especially after you'd already spent each day spending three or four hours in a makeup chair before we ever started, there was a premium in, like, let's get him while he's at his height, which was usually early in the process of the day. You know, some actors are, are actors that... As the day goes on, they get better and better and better, and they settle. You know, they start out very nervous and kind of rough-edged, and you know, you don't want to shoot their close-ups to the very last thing you can possibly do because they're they're kind of finding it all through the day. But but Robert was very much the opposite. He was somebody who kind of came in and was at his most spectacular when I think he didn't know what he was going to do. It just kind of would come out. Yeah, I I, I remember this. I believe this movie came out either a year after or before Two Girls and a Guy, and. James Toback, I know he's huge on improv, if I'm not mistaken. and I think I th- he has been, yeah. I, I mean, I, I know it's certainly been a big part of what he's done, yeah. Yeah, and you could tell that, um, you know, Robert in that film especially was kind of firing on all cylinders with just that approach. And you could tell it was like one take, scene to scene, going with the moment, very instinctual um, immediacy. I, like you felt a sense of immediacy and panic with that particular character too. So I could see him being yes. that's that being his preference overall. And what was tricky here was he had to do that, but he had to do that in a very specific idiom of a writer with a very strong voice. I mean yeah. that was another thing that early on he was like, Okay, I'm gonna to want to improvise a lot and I had to be the guy saying, I don't think you can just improvise Dennis Potter. I don't think <laughs> it's not like it's not like sort of naturalistic 
modern American screenwriting. You know, you can't just wing this stuff. And again, at first he was very resistant, and then he kind of came around to it. And then, of course, because he's so brilliant, he did find ways to do it. And we kind of had this agreement. I said, look, I will always give you a takes to go do whatever the hell you want. You've got to give me at least a couple of takes where you kind of stick pretty much to the script because the writing is so specific that I don't know that you're going to be able to turn the switch on and off. Of course, his mind is so great that he actually was, to a large extent, able to improvise Dennis Potter, which is like kind of like improvising Shakespeare. I mean, it's a very specific writing, and, a very, and yet there are lines in the film that were not in the script and that were, I would challenge even a huge Dennis Potter fan to go, oh, yeah, this, is, this, was, this was Downey and this was Potter. Uh, and that's part of where his genius was. I mean, he just kind of did his homework and was able to, to sort of channel Potter's writing and, and would throw stuff in all the time where you go, okay, that kind of was seamless. Um, which was was always remarkable and, and thrilling to me. And what's been thrilling to me as of late, uh, I mean, you've been working on television, I think, going all the way back to probably post-Singing Detective, correct? Um, yeah, in fact, I think, well, the first TV thing I ever did was that was actually well pre-Singing Detective. Oh, um, okay. Um, I, the first thing I did for TV was a very, very odd miniseries mm. called, um, called Wild Palms. That, oh, that's uh, right. Oliver I was Stone, looking for this, and I couldn't find it. Yeah, Oliver Stone produced it. It was kind of like you know, AB. It was, it was sort of like a, it was sort of a a attempt to do the Twin Peaks magic again of kind yeah. of weird surrealism. And they had really, you know, it was all feature directors. It was Catherine Bigelow and and Phil Renault, and it was um, and we each did like different hours, and it was it was tremendous fun to work on. It was Bruce Wagner's script and and from from his sort of graphic novel stuff and i don't know that it turned out that well but it was a hell of a lot of fun to do um and and that was my first experience with tv um not that that was typical television although it's much closer it's funny that was sort of what they're ne- whatever he's now doing on cable but this <laughs> yeah. was like this was way ahead of its time it's like really weird surreal stuff with feature directors doing very brave odd things that make you go what the hell's going on here is now a language that we we very much would accept on an hbo or you know but but put on abc and whatever it was 1992 or something it was people just were like what is this um, kind of how I am about was, the recent season of Twin Peaks is like, what is this? I mean, I know it's David Lynch, but man. <laughs> well, I haven't gotten to watch it yet. I've, you know, but I, I'm part of the problem when you're working a lot is I get so behind on things. Yeah, sure. That I've like got all these. I've got it sitting on my TiVo, and I, I'm really you know excited because I, I grew up on that show, so I am really curious to see for myself like what 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 it is. Um, but but yeah, it was that was the very first hmm. TV thing I did, and then I did, um, I guess I did an episode of Homicide after that, right. um, and I did, uh, and and so so through the '90s I did sort of random occasional things, which were always interesting, and it was lovely because it would help pay the rent while I was trying to get my own projects made, um, and and I tried to do things that I thought were particularly interesting, um, and mostly worked on things that I thought were were really worth having worked on. So sure. I, it wasn't a lot of stuff that I regretted in the end, but. But certainly with the opening up of the cable era, where TV got way more interesting and way more brave and cinematic and visual, and you know that became very interesting to me. Uh, at the same time, the economics of independent filmmaking were changing, and it was getting harder and harder and harder to do the kind of films that I loved. Yeah. Um, 
because they weren't making money. You know, when I when I first did say Chocolate War, you had VHS tapes retailing at eighty nine bucks a piece. I mean, you know, wholesaling at eighty nine bucks a piece. So, right, yeah. um, you know, with ten thousand mom and pop stores around the country, you know, like that's you know eight hundred ninety thousand dollars right there. You know, it's like or whatever. You know, it's like basically there was if you made a film and it was essentially in focus, there was a certain amount of guaranteed return. <laughs> As things evolved and DVDs came out, but DVDs were much cheaper and then cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, uh, as, as foreign sales numbers fell off, getting money to make a film in that 3 to $10 million range that I kind of lived in became very, very difficult. I mean, it happened, people made them, but, but often it meant you had to get a huge superstar or get really lucky. It, it was just much more, it was always uphill, but now it became super steeply uphill. And so I got sort of seduced, as I think a lot of people did. I mean, John Dahl, there were a lot of people who were sort of in my generation of independent filmmakers who got like, well, TV is really interesting and it doesn't take me 10 years to get to do something. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I think a lot of us kind of started working on television because it was like, well, this is really good writing and, and wonderful actors and interesting characters and stories and, and they want us to do cool things and make it look good. And so it became an outlet for a lot of us who were struggling to get our own movies made. Um, and you know, and that was sort of great and horrible. I mean, the the great thing is that television has been remarkable for years, and and, and I'm a huge fan of shows. I mean, and, and I've gotten to work on mostly shows that I would want to watch, which is which is always fun. Um, on the other hand, it's really been hard on independent films because yeah. the same audience that would go out to the kind of films I'd want to make is staying at home and watching Fargo and Leftovers and, you know, and why should they go to the theater when they've got such brilliant material at home? So it's been really, really rough on independent film, but it's been a beautiful, great medium of its own. Um, But as a filmmaker, it's not your medium, and that's the difference, is that as a filmmaker, uh, when I work on Fargo, I mean, that's, that's Noah Hawley's show. You know, he is the auteur. I'm there... You know, he's the architect, I'm the contractor. I mean, I'm there to do everything I can to make it as great as I can, but he's the vision, and, and my job is to serve that vision. The same thing with Damon on Leftovers or any of these shows. At the end of the day, it's the creator showrunner who's truly the visionary of the piece. And, and as a filmmaker, you're almost more in the role that, say, a cinematographer might be on a feature film. You're there ah, to, okay. to help... Okay. Um, execute their vision and to add to it and to you know bring new ideas to it and all that. But at the end of the day, if I do an episode of something and I like it and the person who's the creator of the show doesn't, that's a failure. And vice versa, if I don't like it but the creator of the show is thrilled, then that's success because my job is to execute something that they are the only person who has the grand vision of what the piece is going to be. Um, so it's you have to sort of subsume your ego a lot. Sure. Um, sure. Now, that said, it's fun because sometimes it pushes you way outside your comfort zone and the style of a show might be very different than your own instinctive style and you have to adapt to what that is. And So there is a great opportunity for learning and stuff, but I do miss the sense of making your own film where you're making those choices, where you're picking the cast, you're picking the crew, you know, you're picking the style, you're picking the voice, you're picking the music. And, and in television, those things all go to the really the, the creator visionary, um, which they need to, because they're the person that's there binding a whole bunch of interesting dis- disparate directors work together. So if we all come in, you know, if we all, if me and Carl Franklin and whoever, we all come in and like start doing whatever the hell we want, the show would just be a mess. So <laughs> Yeah, there needs need to be that. some consistency. And that comes from really that, that showrunner, creator, head person who, who's the real visionary of the show. And the rest of us are just trying to pick up on their vibe and then bring as much as we can to it. But, but it's got to come from that one vision. 
But I can see you becoming that one vision, that creative visionary and certainly working on a project that could you know, eventually wind up on FX or Stars or Amazon or Netflix. I mean, there's a lot of outlets now. Thankfully, yes, there is, but there's also a tremendous amount of competition. I mean, I've had, sure. I have that first, I have a first look deal at FX, and I have, I mean, there, you know, it, it's, it's not like I haven't been trying. I've been, I've been yeah. developing things for TV, and but, but you know, the reality of TV right now is that you know, yes, there's more outlets than ever, but there's also more people. There is, there isn't a, a top rank, either in terms of no, no, notoriety or talent actor or director or producer who doesn't have 10 TV projects right now. I mean, so, you know, if I go to pitch something at, like, Amazon or something, you know, as I'm walking in, Ridley Scott's walking out, and as I'm walking out, Steven Soderbergh's walking in, yeah. and, and that's the reality of it. I mean, it, it, it is, you know, it is not the seller's market that I think people on the outside think it is, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. as much as there's a lot of networks, everyone gets the TV is the most interesting place in the film universe right now. Yeah, so, get in line, buddy. That's kind of what it's like, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So it's very, very hard. I mean, when you go out with a script, I mean, I was, you, know, from, you know, my agent yesterday was saying, yeah, they probably get probably about 20 scripts a day, you know, any given network. I mean, it's just... So you're, you know, it's it's something I would love to do, and I'm developing something with Warren Littlefield right now because we became friends on Fargo, and we've got a uh, something that we're really excited about. But it's it is tough, and 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 in just having people who are very successful, I mean, I've had you know very powerful producers and people involved with some of these, and we still couldn't get anywhere because mm-hmm. you know if you don't have something that fits right with what you know a network is looking for at that moment, given this market, there nobody's really interested in like, well, we like that idea, but could you work on us with? It's like. No, that doesn't fit exactly what we want, and we have plenty of other things to look at that might. And so it's, it's right at this moment, it's very tricky, but certainly it's something I'd love to do. And certainly I'm far from giving up on it, and, and I've I'm, I'm, you know, got my hands in a bunch of television pies. Nice. Um, but it is, but there's this, this notion that I do find people have of, oh, well, there's so many networks. It's like, yeah, and there's so many creative people who <laughs> all know that there's so many networks. So, sure. um, which makes for a wonderful... Yes, in in some ways, it's it's as much competition as, you know, it, the indie world used to be tough because there was not that many dollars around, but there were also a lot of ways to skin that cat. You could piece together equity. You could be, you know, TV is like there's only so many networks really in the end. I mean, yes, there's a bunch, but if you want to do something high end and smart and cool, and there's only this list isn't that long. And everybody brings every cool product, and then it's why there's so much great stuff, which is wonderful as a viewer. But as a possible creator, it's like mind-blowing when you realize what you're up against. Um, So certainly I'd love to be that person, and certainly I have things I'm hoping will become that thing. But it it is definitely, you know, there's a bit of winning lottery involved with it. Yeah, I don't doubt that too. I mean, it's I'm pretty I'm pretty amazed at how much I guess these cable networks too are getting away with. I'm I mean, especially watching American Gods, I was kind of like, whoa. Um, and there's a, like an innovative show like Louis, and then that sort of spawned his own project with Horace and Pete, and pretty much he just did that all himself uploaded it to his website, asked his fans to check it out, and next thing you know, it's on Hulu. So you kind of just never know, too, with, with, with projects yeah. like this, which ones are going to take off. Well, it's evolving also so rapidly. How it works is changing yeah. constantly, and I think that's, again, in the big picture, I think it's a very good thing because it keeps things very fresh and creative, and what he did was so remarkable, and everybody thought he was crazy, and, and in the end it really worked out well. 
for sure. Um, so, you know, I, I, I actually think the fact that there's a lot more ways to skin the cat than there have been in the past, and certainly in the TV arena, is, is a really good thing. But, but it also means that it's very hard to know what rules you're playing by, and you're mm-hmm. kind of guessing the best you can and trying to set up your own rules and hoping that it'll work out. But it's, 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 it's definitely the formulas that everybody tosses about are not you know, are changing so fast that they're sort of outdated by the time somebody says them out loud. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Like, I, th- there's game-changing shows left and right, and some of them which you've been working on as of late, which, you know, three of, three of them are three of the best shows on TV right now, if not ever. Better Call Saul, Fargo, The Leftovers. And I know it's a bit of a cliche question to ask, but I can't help but wonder what it's like working with Carrie Coon on two different shows because I mean I had no idea who this person was until <laughs> Gone Girl and then yep. suddenly she has become one of my favorite actresses to watch on screen. So oh, she's remarkable. She is so good and she's also one of the nicest people in the world. I don't I mean, doubt it. We we've become good friends and I'm just crazy about her and I'm also crazy about her husband, you know. <laughs> oh yeah. Lettes. So I mean, I, I, they're 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 a remarkable pair of artists and human beings, um, and you know, Carrie's yeah, Carrie is, is another one of those people who could do anything. I mean, seems like it. I, yeah. She really it's that stupid cliche about like she'd make the phone book reading the phone book interesting, but she really would. Um, and and yeah, getting to work with her on two very different projects was a delight. And you know, it's so you know when you have a really great relationship with an actor or anybody, a DP. It, it's so much easier. You're so you feel so at home. It's so comfortable. You can say anything. You can tease each other. You can you know, you can be really direct. You can it it just you know so so working with her like this year on Fargo was so much fun because we'd had such a history from the leftovers and it was you know very very comfortable and very very enjoyable and and watching the subtle differences that she brings to different parts. I mean, oh yeah, she's, she's so you know and 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 she's one of those actors that it's not always. I mean, it's not like she's somebody who like puts on a, you know, a big funny nose. Or I mean, there's some actors right. who I think create very different characters, but it's very outward directed. With her, it's very subtle. It's rhythms. It's it's how she holds her body. It's you know, it's it's stuff that you could miss if you're not looking closely. But if you look closely, you realize like how utterly different those two women are. I mean, Nora and, uh, and Gloria are utterly different human beings, but it's not like she looks like a completely different person. It's not like exactly, she put on some yeah. weird, you know, you know, blonde wig or something. She just did it with just her rhythms and her her energy and her, you know, she just kind of becomes this person. And she does it so easily. And she just does it so, you know, I mean, I know that, of course, underneath it, there's tremendous work. It's never that easy. But, but, but the sense when you're working with her is that it just flows and you can kind of say anything to her and she'll try stuff and she's, you know, very unafraid and very bold and, and, and very, uh, she really adapted to TV remarkably well because TV, the pace is insane. I mean, you're moving so fast, too fast. And you're not getting a rehearsal period, and you're not, you know, you're kind of just diving in and doing stuff. And she comes out of theater, and I think, I, there, you know, for a lot of theater actors, I think that transition is, is not easy, because you're going from a tremendous amount of homework and work and time and discovery into, okay, go, you know, you know here you are, you know, create something beautiful. And she just seems to somehow just found herself and seems to be able to just jump in. Again, kind of like what I was saying about Downey and his way. I mean, she's able to jump in with just both feet and just be completely into it. 
um, and does her own homework. I mean, she, you know, I don't know what her process is. I've never sort of said, like, what do you do when you work on a scene? But she comes in knowing the scene, knowing something about what the truth of it is to her, and it always seems to be incredibly insightful and deep, and she certainly knows way more about the characters than I ever do, um, which as a director is what you want. I mean, oh, you want sure. people playing it to be smarter than you are about it. Um, and so if she's got an instinct, probably 19 times out of 20, it's going to be the right instinct because she knows who these women are and why they are the way they are. And so even if I came in with a certain thought and she does something very different, uh, almost inevitably it would be, yeah, that's the you, you're doing the better version, um, the funnier or deeper or sadder or whatever version. So, um, you know, she's somebody like her that's a gift. Uh, although i got to say, I mean, there's a lot of wonderful actors in TV now, and, and oh, yeah. I've really been so lucky in terms of who I've gotten to work with and, you know, how good people are. It's just, you know, I don't know how people can do this kind of seven day, pages a day pace and bring the kind of subtle complexity that they do in these roles, but somehow they do. Um, so yeah. it's, you know, I... I'm I'm sort of uh, uh, open now to wonderment at what what I, what I find on working on a lot of these shows. Yeah, same with um, you and McGregor uh, <laughs> this season playing two yeah. different roles. It's pretty great to yeah. see him do that because he's always been a an excellent actor to watch on screen. And you know, I mean, to me, Carrie Coon is practically on the level of like a Jodie Foster at this point because yes, oh, absolutely. No, I, I mean, I I think. I mean, I hope for Carrie that she gets the mileage out of this that she deserves. I mean, I yeah. hope people offer her incredible roles because I think she deserves that. Yeah, I think she deserves to be a huge star, not in the sense of like money and riches and fame, which I wish, as a friend, I would wish for her. Although I don't know how much she cares about that stuff; it's just not her personality. But I would more wish for her the chance to do the kind of juicy, wonderful parts that she would want because she deserves it. She deserves to the chance to to run the spectrum and to play everything. And, uh, you know, she's, a, you know, really a rare, rare talent. And I, I want to see her play every kind of role because I know she'll bring stuff to it that will be, as a viewer, intoxicating. Yeah, and also that kind of holds true. I want to see more dramatic work from Michael McKean after Better Call Saul. I just... Absolutely. Wonderful, Absolutely wonderful in that. And show. you know, and and, and you know, and, and and who would have thought? Although I kind of actually, I was about to who would have thought, but I thought I kind of had the instinct. I mean, I think a lot of really great comic actors, if they're truly actors, you kind of can see it in some of because even his comedy work was so specific and yeah. rich, yeah. and those characters were so. What made his characters so funny is that they were always very real, and so anyone who can be incredibly real and be funny has a good shot at being incredibly real and being sad, too. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are some comic actors where it's all about, like, the timing of the jokes, or but, 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 but those characters, you know, his characters were always, they were, like, what made them funny is you felt like that guy exists. And, you know, yeah. that, that's yeah. not shocking that he could then turn around and break your heart. That's true. And speaking of underrated, um, you know, he's, he's in the big picture, and I wouldn't say, like, that is, like, an outrageous wacky character that he's playing. And I think no. I think I think the big picture is one of the best movies about making movies and uh this was before Christopher Guest kind of did his, you know, um improv approach to filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just it's great to just watch these actors whether if I've grown up with them or not evolve in the way that they have and you know, all these shows are are great showcases for actors and you know, even more recently American Gods has um 
Uh, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting his name. That's terrible. Uh, oh, and Deadwood. I haven't seen it yet. Deadwood guy. Uh, oh, uh, um, the uh, um, McShay. McShay. Uh, McShane, oh McShane, McShane, right? Okay, because I haven't yeah, seen the yeah. American God yet, but yeah, I love McShane. Oh God, yeah, that's it's I, it's. I, <laughs> you know, again, another person that I could watch do anything you know, for sure. So I um, think I think it's appropriate to talk, um, you know, for the next twenty minutes or so, a little bit about underrated filmmakers, since well, I do consider sure. Waking the Dead to be one of the most underrated <laughs> films of the twenty past years. And well, well, thank you. <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. So you know. Um, Throw out some names that have either inspired you or well, whose well, we work. Well, sort of, we had sort of talked about this, I mean, or emailed back and forth a bit about it, and I started jotting down, and I, I literally couldn't get through the A's. I mean, there's so many people that I love that, like, I just I just started looking at, like, the DVDs on my shelf and thought, oh, my God, like, where do you even start with this? Because there's underrated, and there's also just underknown. Yeah, you know, underknown, I mean, a lot too. of filmmakers mm-hmm. who, are, who are doing spectacular work, for example, outside the U.S., um, and whose films just don't get here, and people just don't know about them. I mean, like one of my favorite filmmakers in the world right now is Roy Anderson. Sure. And I think other than, like, movie geeks like me, I think, you know, most people you say Roy Anderson, and they just they have no idea who you're talking about. Um, and I, can't, I don't know who's making more creative, amazing, challenging, funny, visionary. I mean, it's like, you know, somebody once said, you know, the guy's a combination of Monty Python and Igmar Bergman, and I think <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, I mean, he's howlingly funny and heartbreaking at the same time, and all of his movies are are spectacular-looking films. I mean, he builds these insane sets. All of his films are, you know, done in this in this, or, or all of his more recent films in this idiom where he, you know, entire long, long scenes will play out in one shot. You know, it's always like, you know, right. basically he picks one great angle. He builds, I mean, incredible huge sets full of forced perspective, and you know that. And and basically the whole scene just plays out like a play, and yet it's the most visual thing thing you've ever seen because it's the sets are so surreal and weird and everybody's kind of wearing this white face paint. I mean, it's certainly nothing like naturalism. Um, and he manages to, I think, say so much about humanity and how people behave and how we treat each other and um, and does it like nobody else. I mean, his films aren't like anybody else's films I've ever seen. And to me, that's really, really exciting. And and that's somebody that I'm so frustrated that people don't know here. He's very well known in Europe and won a lot of awards. And but but people just you know, even even my film fan friends generally haven't heard of him. I mean, it's only people who are really into the <laughs> wait who who like me spend far too much time watching things on DVD and Blu-ray. <laughs> They're the only ones that seem to know him. And so he's somebody that you know I always like to sort of talk up because I think. It's just an. It's like what Dennis Potter did as a writer. I think Roy Anderson does as a as a filmmaker. He mm. he forces you to completely reconceptualize your idea of story, your idea of what movies are and how they should be structured and how they should be told. And he does it while being wildly entertaining. I mean, there are art movies with a capital A, but they're also damn fun and really funny. And I think that's a, that's an incredible thing. I feel like um, his uh, his latest movie, uh, The Pigeon, um, mm-hmm. on the branch. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, what? Oh, now, now I'm embarrassed. Um, um, it's uh, uh, a pigeon sat on a branch contemplating existence. Yes, um, that's on Netflix, or it was at one point. So, I think a, a few, you know, obviously film fans that I know, uh, 
made an effort to see that movie because it made some top ten lists and whatnot. But I, I have, I have watched that and I did like it. I have to go back and watch his other work too. Well, so. what, well, what you should really do. I mean, he did this trilogy. Uh, there was that. There, it's songs on the second floor. You the Living and Pitchens Have a Branch, which he calls like the human nature trilogy or something, and they all are. I mean, they're all in different ways about, and they sort of, in no way do they tie together in terms of plot. In fact, none of them really have plot. They're all just these short scenes that, that kind of add up to a bigger picture, but then the three films add up to a bigger picture still ah. of sort of the weird, sad folly of human nature. Um, historically funny, but we, you know, and, and, and they were made from like, I think the first one was made in like 2000, and I think Songs from the Second Floor like one. At, you know, at Con, at one Best Picture, and but again, never got released in America. It's 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 really a, an extraordinary trio of films, mm-hmm. and and they were all made in that same completely surrealist style. But but they build on each other. So if you found it at all interesting, you'd probably should take a look at all of them because they kind of dance together. Um, and what's funny is like years earlier than that, he made this wonderful, wonderful film like back in nineteen. 70, 71, something, oh, wow. um, called a, a Swedish Love Story, which is a completely naturalistic film, and oh. it's maybe one of the best films I've ever seen about teenage love. It was like it's basically it's a teenage love affair, um, and you know, just a, a young boy and a young girl sort of first discovering love and sex and passion, and and it's just so sweet and real and honest and just completely heartfelt, and it's amazing to think that's the same guy who thirty years later reinvented himself as this insane Fellini on acid, you know, and Fellini's already on acid, um, surrealist. Yeah. Um, and you look at these movies and you go, the same guy made these? But he did. He obviously went through this evolution that I find really fascinating. And that's, and that's also, you know, a really wonderful movie, Swedish Love Story, which is, you know, again, not known here, but very successful, I think, all over the world. It just never had an American life particularly. Yeah, and a name that you mentioned earlier, uh, Phil Jonau, is that how you say it? I, I think it's Renault, but I, I oh. God knows I could be wrong, which would be really embarrassing. But. Yeah, I think he's Canadian, so that would make sense, too. Um, but he, I, you know, he started out as a great music video director, but then one of his early films, you know, in terms of playfulness with the camera and cinematography and having like almost like a Sam Raimi approach to high school, um, 3 O'Clock High is just mm-hmm. a remarkable film, <laughs> especially stylistically. I mean, you can say what you want about maybe it being dated or the acting isn't as strong, but I I still th- – I mean, he also cast amazing character actors in that movie who I – obviously when I first saw it as a kid, I had no idea who Philip Baker Hall were or um, – uh, Jeffrey Taylor. Well, and he was sort of ahead of the curve. Like, I don't know how many other people. I mean, Phil Baker Hall again was a really known theater actor, but that sure. may have been like one of the first uses of him in film. So, I mean, Phil may have really been ahead of the curve <laughs> on some of those people. Yeah, that's and it's 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 so good and so well directed and so inventive and playful, and you know, I I'm a fan of State of Grace, and there's. I mean, he's got some movies. I guess fairly recently, including a, a horror movie last year. I guess. That I had no idea existed until I looked at him, looked them up here on uh, Wikipedia. I guess it was released by uh, Blumhouse Productions. So, kind of huh. curious to we, see if I he's... have to say I didn't know, but it makes me curious too. Yeah, no, most definitely. So he's a he's a guy I've I've championed, uh, particularly because I know you did Three O'clock High, Rattle and Hum, State of Grace. So that's a great trifecta right there for for him. So. And, you know, he's, he's done such different things. I mean, yeah. when you look at the different films that he has made, he's he's one of those people that I really 
and I really like, you know, he seems to adjust his visual style to what he's doing. Sure. Like, he can be a completely stylized director, but he's also capable of toning that down if that's what a scene or a moment or, or even a film calls for. And I think that's also a really, you know, cool thing is people who, like, are incredible stylists but also have the ability to go, okay, but I'm not just going to just pound my style onto this. I'm going to, like, see what this calls for. Yeah. Um, and I think that's often what makes for the best filmmakers or the people who have the ability to shoot things in a way that you maybe never saw but also don't have the need to prove themselves every time. Right. You know, they, they kind of look at what, what, is this, what is this piece of material asking me for. Yeah, and that's, again, uh, you know, to bring up one of my top five favorites, Sam Raimi. It's not like he did all these crazy, wild camera shots in something like a simple plan because that's a story that doesn't call for, you know, uh, crazy POV camera smashing through a cabin kind of shots. Yeah, and, 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 and indeed kind of would have worked against it because it's such a simple, yeah. heartfelt story that, yeah, I'm, I'm right with you. And, and I think it was... I think that's. I think he's exactly that kind of filmmaker. Where you know, you look at his his, his wilder movies, and the guy mm-hmm. can do anything. I mean, he yeah. can he can you know, I don't know who does more creative stuff with a camera, but but clearly was able to do you know. And, and in some ways, it may be his greatest film of all his films, maybe Simple Plan, and yeah. that's you know, in some ways, the simplest. And and you know, I think that's that is always interesting to me as, as a viewer, as somebody who can do that. And what other names do you have uh, that come to mind? Well, I mean, again, I was uh, um, there's a here, here's a guy that nobody's seen. He's just made a couple of films, but I I happened to stumble on them, and I really really liked them. Uh, there's a guy named Jim Akin, hmm. A K I N. Um, he made he made two films, um, one of which was called um, The Ocean of Helena Lee. Oh, um, I've heard of this. Okay, which is a I mean, and we're talking really tiny films. We're talking about films that. I don't know what the budgets were, but they couldn't have been more than a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, he he clearly works with a bunch of friends, and you know they're kind of every you know his probably his crew looks like it's about eight people when you see the end credits. Um, and before that, he made a film called After the Triumph of Your Birth, um, and both of which I just thought were really creative movies. But actually, particularly After the Triumph of Your Birth, which got almost no attention at all. I stumbled into a couple of reviews for it. Um, that made it sound really interesting, so I tracked it down, which was not easy. I mean, it's like, it's like for sale on on burned Blu-ray. I mean, it's like it's not even like, like they don't, they don't, I think there's no distribution company. I think he just sells it like it's not even listed on uh, IMDb here. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you can probably find it on Amazon. Okay, because I think that's where I finally bought it from. Um, but it's and it, and again, it's very odd and unique and inventive and it's just not quite like anything else. It actually has a couple of musical numbers in it, which is like a $100,000 movie. I mean, they're tiny, but they're, they're sort of fascinating. And, um, and, and, and just somebody that I think is... I, was, I love finding those movies. I love finding those movies that... Um, that it's like, why would you ever know about this? And it was just, in my case, luck that I, I stumbled onto an article about him. And I went, oh, that sounds interesting. And so I just like, bought the DVD... Yeah, I just looked it up as we're speaking. It, it is it is on uh, it's on a, it's on Amazon. Oh, sweet. Okay. Um, and and it's yeah, and it's like basically it's only, it only has five reviews. I think one of which is mine, <laughs> and, <laughs> and they're and they're all like five star reviews. Um, it's, it's just kind of a really remarkable. You know, this guy he takes the archetype of the loner um, and creates something very 
emotional and and funny and surreal and and you know I, you know I, I would bet his budget was like forty grand for that one. I mean, I'm just Jeez. guessing, but I mean, just he basically seemed like he went out with a few friends and a camera and told a really wonderful story and managed to be completely creative with it. That's um, great. So so that's somebody that I I just. I, I just would, I would love to see people to find his films because I think he's really talented and deserves to get to make more films. And so if people go and I mean I don't even know if they're on Netflix or if you have to buy them or if it, but I feel like if people support it, maybe he'll get to keep making stuff. Um, you know I've never met the guy. Um, I mean we, we exchanged a couple of emails because I wrote to him at one point just saying how much I like the work, but I mean I've, I've never met him, you know, spoke to him directly, just through the electronic sphere. But uh, but I think he's a tremendously talented guy that I hope continues to do, you know, that kind of work. You know, a, a similar name that came to mind that initially started out really really small and not a lot of people knew of his work was uh, David Robert Mitchell who did the Myth of the American Sleepover, and then Ooh, <laughs> I don't know. Wow. And then. A movie I'm sure you know came out uh, a few years later called It Follows. So he's which kind I know of a of, name, but I never, I never saw. Which I so I <sighs> have to admit, I have to admit some ignorance here. No, it's all right. I mean, I, I, I definitely was aware of that title, but I've never seen it. It's a fascinating horror coming of age horror movie, where you know the 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 premise is very simple and just that. There's this entity that will follow you if you have sex with somebody. And huh. the only way you can get them to not follow you is by sleeping with somebody else. So it's like this curse that is passed down from person to person. And it is one of the best directed movies in a very long time. Um, and the score, of course, now, you know, now with Stranger Things being what it is, uh, it's very Carpenter-esque and very 80s. <laughs> um, so, you know, based on what he did with the myth of the American sleepover, I would say he's worth seeking out for that film and especially for It Follows. Um, and then spawning off of that would be a, an actress who starred in the myth of the American sleepover, and that's Amy Simetz, who... Oh, sure, who's been doing such interesting work. Absolutely. Um, Sun Don't Shine is a great independent film that she worked her butt off on. In she shot it in Florida, which is her home state, and it's just really great. It's one of those beautiful, moody sort of David Gordon Green kind of um, you know simple relationship studies. That I don't know. I just I th she's got her and the guy that she's potentially still seeing, um, Shane Carruth, are like my. My, my oh, I didn't. People. I didn't know there were a couple, but certainly he's wildly talented. Oh. I mean, I, 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 you know that <laughs> yeah. that that would that that's a really interesting couple of people, for sure. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I know they. I know I knew they'd work together, but I didn't realize that they might have actually been together or might even still be together. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's kind of. I think Shane Kruth casted her in Upstream Color because he saw Sun Don't Shine, and ah. yeah, that's. I think I think they're still an item, but I mean, I know she's hard at work at the uh, second season of. Uh, the girlfriend experience, and the first season I thought was very well done. So I'm excited. Which again, for I have not future. seen yet. That's one of the ones sitting on the shelf, along <laughs> with like so many things. It's kind of, I mean, I have this backup at this point that is so frightening and overwhelming, especially with TV because TV takes more hours to watch, and so mm -hmm. I've got all these incredible. I've got everything from Atlanta to girlfriend experience to. I mean, I've I've still never seen Game of Thrones. I mean, I'm like. 
it's like stupid, but it's just trying okay. to keep up with you're all busy the, working on some of these shows. Well, and that does make it really hard. It's funny because when you're, you know, certainly when you're working, you know, you're in film. It, the days are like fourteen hours long, and yeah. you know, if you're going to watch anything, it's going to be your own dailies. And most days, you're too exhausted to barely even do that. So what happens is you end up just ever further behind, um, and knowing that there's all this amazing stuff that you're just, you know, someday when you retire, you'll catch up on everything. Yeah, that's my plan. Same with all the books I buy. It's like, ah, I'll get to this when I retire. (laughs) Well, sometimes it's all you can tell yourself because it's kind of the. I mean, I I think I mean I'm probably into the thousands of like little of uh, between between screener DVDs and Blu-rays and things I bought because so many people said it was wonderful, so I just bought it. Or I'm like, it's like I I don't know when I'll ever see them all, but uh, but I'm gonna try. Um, any- but yeah, she's she's done certainly a lot of. I mean, I mean, as an as an actress, as yeah. a writer, as a director, and sort of in every combination, um, you know, and it's kind of like almost anything she picks to be a part of is pretty interesting. I mean, even if she's just playing like a small part in somebody else's movie, it usually means that movie's gonna be pretty interesting. For sure, she she always stands out and has a great screen presence. But she's gone on to be a, a, an incredible director in her own right. So just wanted to give her a shout out. How about yeah, you? absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, another one. I, I keep coming up with a, sort of a little bit more of of some European people I think aren't known here. I, another really, really favorite filmmaker of mine is a guy named Fatia Keen. Mm, um, that's that's another Keen. I got Jimmy Keen and Fatia Keen. I'm telling you, I looked at my A's. I, I wasn't kidding. I started going down the, my movies list, and I went, "Oh my god, I can't get out of A." And that you know, Fatia Keen has done, I think, some of the some of the best films of the last twenty years. Uh, he made a film called Head On. Uh, hmm. Which he's a, he's a German Turkish filmmaker. Uh, Head on is sort of a Romeo and Juliet love story uh, between a, a German and a Turk, and it's so beautifully done. It's so beautifully acted, shot. Music is incredible. He does he uses a piece of U two at one point, which is just so such a great use of it. It's heartbreaking. It's it's a really phenomenal film. I mean, just, you know, and again, a film that had tremendous success in Europe, never had a theatrical release here that I know of, barely got a DVD release here, um, but is really, really worth seeking out. He also made a film called The Edge of Heaven, which won con, and again, mm. barely got released here, uh, which is more of a, of a broader polit- political film about the state of Europe and Muslims and 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 different sort of tribal identities and um which is a remarkable remarkable piece uh he made a terrific uh documentary called garbage in the garden of eden uh about uh sort of his hometown and it how it's sort of being taken over by a garbage dump quite literally um you know he's just he's just one of those people who's just i think a tremendous talent i'm trying to think of other favorites of his he did another documentary called crossing the bridge the sound of istanbul which is a just a documentary on the music scene in istanbul which is incredible because it's this mix of you know, thousand-year-old instruments and music with the most high-end sort of Brian Eno on acid pop and people combining them in different ways and um, just kind of a thrilling documentary. Um, and he seems to move very comfortably between documentary and, and, and narrative fiction. Uh, and again, just a great, great filmmaker who I think is, you know, I don't know if he's a household name in Europe, but he's won like every award you can win in Europe, and he's and and his films just are not seen here and barely released here. I mean, his most recent film, I don't, I don't even think he's gotten a, a DVD release in America. Um, so it's a it's a strange thing because he's kind of like this world world film figure who just isn't never caught on here. Um, but he's somebody that I really would recommend people seeking out. And uh, again, one of those people who's got just 
just an endless range, which is, you know, from like he's done silly comedies and dark, dark dramas and epics and movies that are two people alone in a room and, you know, I mean, just, just, and, and endlessly brave. I mean, you know, it seems like whatever he does, he tries to do something completely opposite the next time out. Uh, and I always think that that's exciting uh, instead of like sort of developing something going, this is what I do and then doing it over and over again. I guess his latest movie, um, Play the Con, and it's um, In the Fade, and it's mm-hmm. got Diane Kruger and music by the guy from Queens of the Stone Age. That's interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and, and that I've not seen that yet yeah. either. I mean, the latest one of his I saw was the one before that, Goodbye Berlin, but I was only able to see it by buying a German you know, DVD or Blu-ray, which happens to have English subtitles on it, but there's no U.S. release of the Blu-ray. Uh, God bless um, region-free Blu-ray players. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, I would, I would be a dead man without them. Um, but you know, I mean, here's a guy again who's like won every award, and, and Goodbye Berlin is actually based on a very big, you know, young adult novel in Germany, and it, you know, the film has actually done quite well, I think, economically within that sphere. But it just never, you know, I don't think anybody has picked it up for the U.S. Uh, they may have, but I haven't heard about it. Um, and you know, and that's not, I think, his very strongest film, but it's still a really delightful, entertaining uh, teenage movie. Which again, you think of be, as being fairly commercial, and I think it could translate easily to the U.S. because it's kind of like one of those films about, you know, it's a coming of age film, but done with a great deal of of quirkiness and and odd, fun sensibility. And um, I don't know why an American audience wouldn't respond to it, but you know, it's just. I think the problem is, again, like with TV, there's just so much stuff out there, and people want sure things. And, you know, this has got subtitles, and I think the second has subtitles, probably 80% of the distributors out there will get nervous. Yeah. Um, so, That's you know, it's that, yeah, it's, I, it's silly. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll throw one more name, and you can throw out one more name. Um, okay. One that, I mean, I, again, like this movie, she's made a movie that a lot of people have seen, of course. Um, and this would be a Canadian filmmaker by the name of Mary Heron. She's also a screenwriter, of course. Oh, that's a very familiar name. I'm trying to think of why, why I, I know I've, yeah, I, I, why, tell why do I know her? <laughs> um, in 1996, I probably rented it maybe a year later. Um, I caught her independent film debut with one of my favorite acting performances by Lily Taylor in a movie called I Shot Andy Warhol. Oh, that's, yes. Okay, yes, she's wonderful. She's a wonderful filmmaker. Yeah, yes. Now I know who you, yes. And when yes, I saw I that, really. I was just like, oh, man, I wanna fo- I'm going to follow this person's career for, for the long haul here because I just, I thought that was one of those great kind of uh, experiment, like almost like what American Splendor did, just like was very playful with kind of the biopic portrayal of somebody. Um, and obviously, you know what she did, and all the hor- like all the horrible things she did with with involving Andy Warhol is certainly compelling. But just her as an individual, as a character study, it's really, really well done and very interesting. It's not just A to B to C kind of storytelling. Uh, it does a lot of playful things with form, kind of similar to what Gus, Gus Van Sant did with My Own Private Idaho. It just sort yeah. of cuts away to like just different types of um, storytelling techniques, and I, I'm such a sucker for that. So, and of course, later on, you know, four years later, she would go on to do a movie that everybody's seen called American Psycho. Um, right. That's that's the thing where I think that that's what sort of made her name. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Although, you know, what, what's frustrating is that since then, she's never gotten to do feature work on the same way that yeah. that got yeah. the same kind of attention. Exactly. Um, and that's what's been disappointing. So I want her to work more. <laughs> 
And, well, I mean, she's doing again, like what a lot of us do. She's doing a ton of TV, yeah. you know, and yeah, she's doing way. a lot of interesting television work. And, and and you know, that's what happened is that you know you you make a couple of films, and and then TV now is really good, and you get sucked into doing it because that's where the interesting stuff is, and you get tired of spending ten years trying to get your movie made. Sure. Um, so you know, it's. I mean, I'm just looking. I mean, as we're talking, of course, I'm just doing the thing that everybody would do, which is like I'm looking on IMDb, and it looks like she's she's done a a mini series of of Alias Grace, the uh, Margaret Atwood book, which sounds really, really oh, with Sarah Polly, no less, who I yes, also right. think is I'm a huge incredible. fan of Sarah Polly. Yeah, incredible film. Yeah, so too. so that actually sounds that's actually something to really look forward to. It it's uh, she directed it, and this has Sarah Polly has I guess wrote the screenplay for it and is producing it. So nice. Um, that's really actually I didn't even know that existed, but now I'm gonna keep keeping my open my eye my eye open for it. Yes, so. uh, Netflix in September. So yeah, um, Sarah Polly, let's put her on the list too. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, for, yeah if, if for everything: acting, writing, directing. You know, for another sure. one of those can do can do anything. People. Yeah. Um, I don't you know I don't even know if she wants to act anymore, which is too bad because I think she's genius at it. But mm-hmm. I also think she's so good at the other stuff that you know whatever she does is going to be. You know, she's going to be adding to the world. Definitely. Um, it's funny. She came very, very, very close um, on Waking the Dead. Um, oh. She, I, I auditioned her a bunch of times. And, and in the end, Jennifer was more right, and, and, I, and I made the right choice for that role and for, you know. And, and, sure. But Sarah didn't. And Sarah was just too young. I mean, in the end, she just, it just didn't, it looked silly. It looked like he was, it looked like, you know, you put Billy next to her and she looked 16. But she was so good and interesting as an actress and as a human being that I, I became a fan right then. At that point, you know, she hadn't done as much stuff. But I was like, who is this? This kid coming in and bringing so much depth and, and intelligence and and uh, maturity to her choices as an actress. Yeah, um, a lot of vulnerability so, too in her work with um, Adam McGoyan. Oh yeah, well yeah. the tweet here after is like definitely on favorite of all time list for me. And yeah, so uh, <laughs> no, I love her, but I but I but I think she's turned into an amazing filmmaker. Um, and and. I love that she's also done such a, a range of stuff. It's not like she's just making her own films. She's producing other people's films. She's writing scripts and not direct. I mean, she's kind of become one of those I can do everything kind of people. And, yeah. And I think that's remarkable. And her doc- documentary was just whew, fantastic. Yeah, uh, no, I, 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 I think she's as good as anybody working out there in, in North America today. Agreed. All right, one more from so, you. Well, one more from me. I guess I would go with, with Tom Anderson, which is T-H-O-M Anderson. Hmm. Um, who's a documentary filmmaker who is American and, again, is shamefully underknown, even though his, his film um, L.A. Plays Itself, um, or oh, Los Angeles yes. Plays Itself, is on like every 10 best documentaries of the last 10 years. And in some, I, think it's on, um, I think it's on Sight and Sound's like, you know, best documentaries ever made shortlist. You know, it's, it's um, just a remarkable filmmaker. Um, and that yeah, film particularly okay. is just so much fun. I gotta see um, that still. I've been. I, I'm gonna put it on my list because I've been meaning to, and I know everybody loves. Well, it. it's finally you know after years and years and years where the only way to see it, and the way I saw it was like like having a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend get you a bootleg VHS copy, because the problem is he makes these films. It's not all that he does, but a number of his films he's made made up of hundreds of clips from Hollywood movies, and mm-hmm. he uses those to, as a way of exploring a topic. And in the case of Los Angeles Plays itself, he explores sort of the personality of Los Angeles, the politics of it, the 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 whole history of Los Angeles through the way it's been portrayed in movies. But that means that he had clips from like 
300 movies. It's like a three-and-a-half-hour documentary, which never gets boring. It's completely entertaining. I mean, people might hear a three-and-a-half-hour documentary and roll their eyes, but this is like, it flies by. It's so much fun. Um, but he also makes incredibly salient points about everything from racism to architecture to... Um, but the whole movie is made of 10-second clip of, the, of you know, Lethal Weapon and a 10-second clip. And it's, just, it's all these huge movies. So apparently it was everybody had given up on the idea that it would ever be put out in the home video market because how could you ever license all that on a weird documentary that would never make a lot of money? And I, I'd love to know the story of how they finally got everybody, I'm sure, just to make some kind of overall deal and say, you know, yes, you can put this out in the world. Because when you watch the film, it's like literally hundreds of movies. Um, and I'm sure it never made much money in terms of, but, but at least it's now viewable. And similarly made a film called Red Hollywood about Hollywood in the 50s and 60s and, and the influence of, of sort of communism and, and the influence of the, of the backlash against communism and sort of the whole... Um, sort of the movements, the movements in the 50s and 60s about in terms of socially conscious and political filmmaking, and and sort of how how Hollywood went through different phases with that, and and it's again fascinating and political and complicated, and it's all clips from from Hollywood movies, um, and wildly entertaining and often very funny, but at the end of it, really raises some important questions about how you know what what popular entertainment does and doesn't say and what it can and can't say and what it's allowed to say and what it's not allowed to say and um just really sort of fascinating fascinating filmmaker um and he's got this new film that again i think has a lot of the same same construction called the thoughts that once we had and and i've been sort of asking around and people are saying yeah who knows if it'll ever get released on home <laughs> video because again it's hundreds of clips from hundreds of things and mm-hmm. you know it doesn't mean that you know they'll be, he'll be able to pull it off yet again because uh, it took Los Angeles Place itself was uh, came out in 2003 and didn't get out on video until like 2014. So it was like 11 Jeez. years of trying to get that film out. Um, and Red Hollywood was actually 1996 and came out in the same year, I think 2014. So that's how long it took to get to where anyone could see those. <laughs> but if you're interested in sort of very creative documentary filmmaking that doesn't seem like anything else you've seen and will really make you think, but you'll also just have fun, uh, I think he's a remarkable, remarkable filmmaker. Wow, we've only scratched the surface here, man. I know you probably have a list a mile long. Maybe we'll just have to do this every few months. <laughs> well, I'll be okay with me. I mean, like I said, I didn't get out of the A's. Everybody just yeah. mentioned that an A name because I literally sat, stood at my disc, my my my, my drawer, uh, shelf full of DVDs, and started writing down. Oh, they're great, they're great, and I realized, oh my god, I'm up to like A A N. Um, <laughs> Because there's so many amazing filmmakers that just, for whatever reason, just never got the attention that they deserve. Yeah, and certainly I have a list too, and uh, maybe we'll just continue this topic uh, another time. uh, I would be delighted. I'd even try to get the beat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's my honor, man, and it's such a pleasure to talk with not just a great talent, but clearly someone who truly loves and appreciates cinema with as much enthusiasm and, and knowledge as you do. And I, well, thank I, you. I, I'm a, I am a geek. I will completely admit I've been in love with movies since I was a little kid. And it's the, only yeah. reason, it's the only reason that I work on them. I mean, I, I do what I do because I'm in love with them. Um, so, you know, for me, that's the joy of it. And I'm glad you get, you get to work and work hard, especially with all these incredibly acclaimed shows that, you know, deserve someone as spirit as and dedicated to the art form like you. So uh, keep it up, man. Can't wait for more. Well, thank you.
thank you, my friend. I really appreciate the support, and it's it's always a blast to talk to you, and I would be Same delighted here. to do it again down the line. So I just know that I always would be up for it. Great. Thanks, Keith. We'll talk again All soon. All right, my friend. I'll Later. talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you again to the great Keith Gordon. And, of course, visit nowplayingnetwork.net for more episodes of this show and many others. See you soon.